For those of you who have been with us as we've gone through 1 Peter, we know that Peter is writing to encourage Christians who have been scattered and are being persecuted. As citizens of heaven, 1 Peter is a how-to book, how to live as sojourners and resident aliens in a world and a culture that is not ours. I know a lot of us enjoy coming to church every week and getting a chance to see everyone and catch up, but some weeks when we come to church, we have trouble connecting with the sermon because we don't feel like it's really applicable to us. No matter how good the sermon or message may be, the content just doesn't hit home. I don't think there are any of us who can dodge how tangible the things we've been discussing the last few weeks are as we've talked about authority and the S word, submission. Submission to the government, submission to masters or employers. And this week, we're going to continue to talk about submission Specifically, submission in our marriages, the smallest, most intimate of all human institutions. Last week, Shannon spoke about husbands honoring their wives, and today, with any luck, we'll speak uh, to the wives and how they can live on mission and influence their husbands and others to Christ. We are going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn there. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. If you don't have your Bibles with you, you should be able to follow along with the words on the screen. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Shannon did a really great job of beating up verse 7 last week, so we're going to be focused on the first six verses of chapter 3 this week. Maybe one of you knows that there are 141 words in the six verses that we just read together, but I'm willing to bet that most of you focused on a couple of words or phrases. Depending on your Bible translations, those words are subject to, submit yourselves, be submissive, and submitting to. Here the Greek word translated as submit is hupotasso, hupotasso, from two words, hupo meaning under, and tasso meaning to line up, to get in order, or to be arranged. It is a military term that speaks of ranking oneself beneath another. It is the continuing form of the verb, which is important because submission in this verse is not a one-time act, but a consistent pattern of behavior. In the movie 300, I tried to pick something the ladies were real familiar with. In the movie 300, a Persian messenger approaches King Leonidas and asks for earth and water as a token of Sparta's submission to the will of Xerxes, the Persian king. As Leonidas considers the words of the Persian messenger, you see his facial expression get much more intense as he responds, submission. Well, that's a bit of a problem. Wish I could say that like Gerard Butler does. I think Jessica wishes I could say it like Gerard Butler too. We've been talking about authority and submission for weeks, but for a lot of people, it just got real. We pretty much grasped the concept of submission to the government and in the workplace, but those things seem distant compared to submission 
in the family and in our marriages. Peter just took things to a whole other level. And we're not going to shy away from the tension this creates. For some of us, there's an elephant in the room. And we're going to go right at it. We're going to hit it in the mouth. And we're going to ride it like a pony. Or a mini horse. Shannon and Ryan really, really like the mini horse. We're going to start with what being submissive is not. With what being submissive is not. Being submissive is not about a woman's value. In our new age, enlightened and progressive culture, many try to make this text about value, and some would even have you think that it proves that Jesus is anti-woman. This is clearly not true. The truth is that Jesus' perspective toward women ran entirely against his Middle Eastern culture then and now, and there is plenty of historical evidence that supports this. In Greek civilization, women had no kind of independent existence and were not allowed to have a mind of their own. They were to remain indoors and be obedient to their husbands. The best wives were those that saw the least, heard the least, and spoke the least. A husband could divorce his wife for any reason at any time as long as he returned her dowry. Under Roman law, a woman had no rights. In law, she forever remained a child. When she was under her father, she was under the patera potestas, the father's power, which gave the father the right even of life and death over her. When she married, she passed equally into the power of her husband. You might be hoping that the Jewish religious leaders were better, but unfortunately, that was not the case. Rabbis began every temple meeting with the words, Blessed art thou, O Lord, for thou hast not made me a woman. Yet Jesus publicly included many women as his disciples, infuriating thank you, the religious leaders. He taught crowds of men and women and healed and performed miracles for women as readily as for men. Jesus also challenged their sexist social laws. There was a law at that time allowing a husband to divorce his wife over anything. For example, dinner not being prepared on time, not serving bacon for breakfast. But a wife could never divorce her husband. Jesus, however, announced that both woman and man had the right to divorce the other, but only on the grounds of adultery. With that being said... We know that divorce is certainly outside of God's design for marriage. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Husbands and wives both bear the image of God himself and stand in equal value before him. One is not inferior to the other, but God does call husbands and wives to fulfill the distinct roles and responsibilities specifically designed for them a pattern that we see laid out for us in the Trinity. Being submissive is not about value. It is also not a call for women to submit to men as a category. I do have to admit that far too often, women and girls are pressured to submit to men in general. This is wrong and simply not biblical. Let's go to the text in verse 1. Be subject to your own husbands. I took this quote from Russell Moore. Submitting to men in general renders it impossible to submit to one's own husband. Submission to one's husband means faithfulness to him and to him alone, which means saying no to other suitors. Submission to a right authority always means a corresponding refusal to submit to a false authority. The third thing that being submissive is not is it is not based on who your husband is, his performance, or putting him first. Some of you think this is your out. You think that being submissive doesn't apply to you because your husband doesn't lead well or you don't believe that he's capable of doing so. 
Let's apply that thought to the previous teaching on authority and submission to the government and in the workplace. Regardless of my view as to how the President of the United States is leading or not, or how the government of the United States is operating, I still have to submit to their authority. And I'm relatively certain that there are a number of you who are under someone's authority at work that you are more capable than. Frankly, I am a great example of that. I have some amazing high aptitude people under my authority at work who are absolutely more capable than I am. Look at the very first word here in verse 1. Likewise. The word likewise is used here to tie this specific text back to the teaching that starts in chapter 2 verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake. In addition to pointing us back to the example of submission by Jesus in chapter 2 verses 20 to 23. For what credit is it if When you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Wives do not submit to their husbands for their husbands. They do it for the Lord's sake and to be obedient to the God-ordained authority structure in the home. Being submissive is not about value. It is not a call to submit to men as a category. And it is not based on who your husband is, his performance, or putting him first. So now that we've talked about some things that submission is not, now let's transition to what being submissive is is. It is being obedient to God's call and command in your life as his wife. Scripture is clear. From the beginning of Genesis 1, we see that God created us in his image as male and female. And continuing through the rest of Scripture, we see clear examples in Genesis 3, Proverbs 31, Ephesians 5, here in 1 Peter chapter 3, and in Titus 2, that men and women are created equal, but for distinct roles. For distinct roles. Wait a second. Wait a second, Kevin, you you don't know who I'm married to. Are you suggesting, for example, that I submit to a husband who once encouraged me to sleep with another man so he could get ahead? Who fathered a child with our housekeeper and later cut them both off financially? Who was selfish and lied about being single so a couple of dudes who thought I looked good wouldn't rough him up? Yes, church. That is exactly what I'm saying. The man I just described to you is Abraham. And his wife, Sarah, is the example of a model wife that Peter gives us here in verses 5 and 6. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Let's play this out for a second. We know that when Abraham was 75, God came to him and told him to go to the land that I will show you. Sarah was 65. Abraham had only the word and promise of God, and he was asking Sarah to leave her family and her place of security. She had to set her husband's God-given calling and duty above herself. She's no different from any other woman. She would have asked questions. Why do we have to leave? The land I will show you is where, exactly where is the land that I will show you. 
we coming back? And all Abraham could respond is, Sarah, I don't know, but I believe God's promise, and you have to come with me. We know from Genesis 3, Colossians 3, Ephesians 5, and this verse in 1 Peter, that God's call requires wives to submit to their believing and unbelieving husbands for the carrying out of his divine plan. Sarah wasn't perfect. None of us are. We see examples in Scripture of her trying to step in and lead Abraham or following Abraham into questionable behavior, and those things never ended well. But she was a model of inner beauty, character, modesty, and submissiveness to her husband because she was obedient to God's call and command as Abraham's wife. Ladies, is there an area in your relationship right now where your husband's trying to lead out in good and godly initiatives and you have the brakes locked up? Is he trying to get your family to be more consistent in coming to church or encouraging you to step into an area of service? Maybe suggesting that your family give even though the budget's tight? Has the subject of adoption come up? Are there topics of conversation that are off limits in your marriage because every time they come up, all you do is lob objections rather than prayerfully considering the decision? Being submissive is being obedient to God's call and command in your life as his wife, and it is also the recognition of God as the source of all authority. Husbands have authority, but they are not the authority. God is the authority, and he and he alone gets to delegate it. Submitting to the God-ordained structure of authority in your marriage does not mean saying yes to every desire or command of your husband. You should not be submissive to your husband's sin. Some of you may be sitting there thinking, Kevin, that's great. But you're up there, and I'm down here in the trenches of a marriage that's struggling. When I leave here today, what do I do when my husband asks me to do something or go along with something that's wrong? Marriage is beautiful. God-ordained marriage is beautiful. Marriage has truly been the greatest blessing of my life. I don't want to ruin the fairy tale for any of the unmarried folks here in this room today, but when you marry, you will struggle. There will be a struggle at times. We know this to be true because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that if you marry, you will have trouble. If your husband is asking you to sin or to go along with sin, you should not disobey God's law to be submissive to your husband. But that does not absolve you from doing so with a gentle and quiet spirit, letting him know that God calls you to love and please him, but first, you have to please and obey God. Maybe that isn't the answer you wanted to hear. Some of you might have been looking for me to give you the green light to lay him out and let him have it, but that isn't biblical. A couple of years ago, I was trying to help a couple uh, who was separated. I'll refer to the wife as Jennifer, because her name is Jennifer. And uh, she was married to a guy that was at least an alcoholic and likely drug dependent as well. I remember taking a call from her one evening, and she was telling me that she'd had enough. She just celebrated her 45th birthday and deserved better. Anytime someone starts telling you what they deserve, it's usually downhill from there. She was going to file for divorce. Jennifer taught Sunday school at her church. So I asked her, 
where in the Bible it said she could divorce her husband because he was an alcoholic and she deserved better. She didn't have an answer and didn't appreciate my question. She had an opportunity to go to her husband and say, I love you and I value our relationship. But when you drink, it hurts you, our son, and me. You have to get help. I'm not going to turn the other cheek or cover for you anymore. But she didn't. She focused on her husband's shortcomings and the things that she felt like she deserved. And this eventually led her to become angry and bitter. And eventually she just withdrew. It was only a matter of time before their divorce was final. I wonder how the situation would have been different if instead of focusing on her lost and broken husband, she could have fixed her eyes on the holiness, goodness, love, truth, justice, authority, and mercy of God. Actually, I do know how that situation plays out differently when your wife looks at who God is instead of what her husband is doing because I've seen it in my own marriage. I know some of you are in the midst of tough situations. Maybe your husband's issue isn't alcohol. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe you're married to a husband who would rather be at work or hunting or fishing or spending time with friends than investing time in his family. Are you wondering where to start? First, you have to embrace the suffering of the situation that you're in and press into Jesus. Don't trust yourself or the world or your husband with your circumstances. Trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. Spend time alone with him in prayer. Spend time in his word. And connect with people in biblical community that can encourage and walk alongside you. Pray. Read connect. Remind yourself that God is the designer of all things, the sovereign over all things, and has all power and all authority. The third thing that submission is, is it's a hard issue. It's a hard issue. Wives, God isn't interested in seeing you put your head down and grind out doing the right things. He doesn't care about your work ethic or your willpower, or your image. We know that he isn't interested in the external. We can look at verses 3 and 4 here. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Why does Peter even bring up the issue of clothes and jewelry and hairstyle? Because braided hair is a sin. I'm just kidding. A couple of you were drifting, so I thought I'd reel you back in. (laughs) Peter addresses these things because he knows that women have a preoccupation with the external. The word cosmetic is drawn from the Greek root word for adornment. And that multi-billion dollar industry was not created by accident. A lot of people abuse this piece of scripture. Braiding your hair is not a sin and neither is jewelry or makeup or being well-dressed. But it is wrong to be consumed with outward appearance at the expense of inward beauty. Not only is it wrong for a woman or a man to place too high a value on external appearances, it is also wrong 
to seek man's approval rather than to strive to please God's. Anybody here see Beyonce at the Super Bowl? Do you think she was more concerned about pleasing God or pleasing man before she went out there dressed that way, dancing the way that she was? What do we see, what do we hear on the radio and see on TV and social media? We see a culture with a disproportionate emphasis on appearance, teaching women to be assertive and aggressive. I love these lyrics from Lecrae, from his song, Free From It All. No, I'm not going to rap them for you. Life is a cage, a prison of everyone's approval. Fight for acceptance and struggle so you don't ever lose it. But living for their acceptance has got us stressing Insecure people obsessed with leaving impressions. Ladies spending time on their faces painting pretty lines. To you and me, it's makeup, but to her, it's a disguise. You look her in the eyes and you see her soul cry because living for other people's got her living a lie. According to Proverbs, a beautiful woman without discretion is like a pig with a gold ring in its nose. Peter's warning wives in verses three and four here that they cannot win their husbands or others to Christ with trendy hairstyles, jewelry, the perfect skin tone, clothes that show just the right amount of skin. Those things may attract them to the bedroom, but probably not to God. How do you know if you're putting too much value into things that are external? How do you know? Look at your checkbook and look at where you spend your time. Do you spend money on the latest and greatest age-defying, wrinkle-eliminating fountain of youth serum? Does your hair, makeup, and clothes budget exceed what you spend on food at the grocery store? Do you spend more on those things than you give to the church? Are people in need? How much time do you spend in front of the mirror? Are you consumed by the weight you need to lose? Or the new fashion trend that's going to change your life? Are you investing more time in those things than you are in prayer? In reading God's word? Man, I see a couple of you guys shaking your heads and I appreciate the show of support and participation. But why do you think women focus on those things? Women focus on those things because we continually show them that's what we value. If we showed our wives honor, if we spoke their love languages, if we treated them with tenderness, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Man, if we loved our wives the way Christ loved the church, they wouldn't put as much value into those things. Ladies, cosmetics cannot change an ugly disposition. And it cannot conceal character. God is always after the condition of our hearts. If you want to win your husband to God, your adornment is going to have to be a gentle and quiet spirit. Some of you hear the words gentle and quiet spirit and probably cringe because you relate those words to being weak or being a pushover. The word gentle used here refers to a type of spirit within a woman that causes her to be mild, compassionate, and caring, not a doormat. 
Wives, are you yielding to the Spirit of God and cultivating a spirit of gentleness that allows you to go to your husband and speak to him in ways that are direct and truthful while at the same time being respectful, gentle, and compassionate? Let's take a second and think about what the opposite of quiet is. Loud, dramatic, explosive. Ladies, are you by the grace of God cultivating an inner imperishable beauty that contributes to a calm and peaceful home? Men, some of you are prone to value perishable beauty. She may be hot, but so is hell. And if the only thing you pursue is perishable beauty, you may find yourself in a version of hell in this life. Some of you boys are laughing because you've lived that one. Ladies, you can spend time and energy on perishable beauty. But if you catch a guy who's only interested in those things, he's going to leave you or trade you in as soon as the rust starts to show through the paint. The world can teach you how to win a man to yourself, but only the truth of Scripture can teach you how to win a man to God. Finally, submission is victory. 1 Corinthians 15, 15, 57 says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the best example of submission? It's Jesus. 1 Corinthians 11, 3 tells us to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. We believe in the Trinity. One God, three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All co-equal and co-eternal. We know that God the Son, Jesus, submitted to the will of God the Father by dying on the cross to pay a price that we couldn't pay. Not for his own sins, but for ours. The rest of our culture views submission as defeat. For Christians, submission is victory. Where does our evangelistic and apologetic journey start? It starts with our submission and our surrender to who Jesus is, what he has done, and the truth of his word. Denying ourselves taking up our crosses daily and following him. Talk about countercultural. In a world where everything revolves around self, take care of yourself, promote yourself, protect yourself, comfort yourself. Jesus says, crucify yourself. Put aside everything in order to live for God's glorification. What Peter is doing in this text is giving wives details on how they can live on mission in their specific role as a wife. What are any of us here for? We're here to make disciples. Listen, if you're sitting in this room and you identify yourself as a Christian, 
You're a missionary. The Great Commission tells us to go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Observation. One over without talk. Silent preaching. This sounds like 1 Peter 3, verse 1. Wives, be subject to your own husbands so that they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. Speaking the truth with our lips is important. But our conduct, our actions are the strongest evangelistic and apologetic tool that any of us has. I'd like to take a second to uh, talk to you about three people who have been instrumental in making me a disciple. One is my little brother, Ryan Wheat, our student pastor here at Redeemer Church. Ryan was the first person in our family who was transformed by the truth of the gospel. I remember uh, seeing him change, seeing his behavior change, and I remember thinking that something was seriously, seriously wrong with him. Um, our, whole fam- our whole family did. Uh, Ryan grew up in my shadow And growing up in somebody's shadow is never fun. But I'm thankful that he was smart enough not to follow in my footsteps, but to lead where it matters most, following in the footsteps of Jesus. Jeremy Foster and I met in the Marine Corps. He was the alpha male at the first unit I checked into. And we were were pretty competitive. Jeremy liked to call it competition called it winning. Um, We spent a lot of time together doing what typical 19 and 20 year olds do in the military, which is not something we're going to talk about today with Avery in the room. Um, He was very, he's like Ryan, he was very engaging. He had an infectious spirit. People just enjoyed being around him. He could be the life of the party. People just gravitated to him. We both eventually got married and slowed down at least a little bit. And then he started to change. He didn't talk the same. He didn't listen to the same music, laugh at the same jokes. He didn't make a big announcement of the changes he was going to make. It wasn't a New Year's resolution. He just did. As Jessica and I got to know his wife, we discovered where the change was originating from. Jesus had transformed his wife, and he was using her to transform Jeremy too. Jeremy invited me to a men's retreat, the first men's retreat that I ever actually attended at a very pivotal moment in my life, and he was instrumental in planting the seed that led to my transformation. Finally, last but certainly not least, my lovely bride, Jessica. Many of you know that we dated in high school and through my time in the military and her time in college, We married young, set off to run down the American dream. Success, the white picket fence, kids that are really advanced, the whole deal. And it was great until it wasn't. I was trying to make a bunch of money in my first sales job, and I'd made some really poor decisions. Those poor decisions led to a sin issue 
that threatened our family. Jessica could have left and taken our two very young children with her, but she didn't. She stayed and loved me with boundaries. The first time in my life that I saw the forgiveness and love of Jesus Christ was in the form of my wife when I deserved those things the least. I hope you guys didn't miss that. Two of the most significant things in my journey tie back to wives who were submissive and faithful. Not to their husbands, but to who God is. I don't want to wrap up today without at least briefly addressing the students and young adults. I have three daughters. And as much as I can't get my head around it today, the reality is at some point they will date and eventually get married. I'm just holding out hope that it's in the very, 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 did I say very distant future. But it will happen. The complimentary view of marriage is the lens that you should look through as you consider dating someone. I'm not a big fan of dating just to date. I'm not saying you can't have friends. That casual dating could lead to things that you later regret. As soon as you know that there is no possibility for marriage, you should probably stop dating. Students and young adults, look for someone whose character is deeply rooted in Christ. If you're not ready for submission, you're not ready to be married. Being submissive is being obedient to God's call and command in your life as his wife. It is the recognition of God as the source of all authority. It is a heart issue. And it is victory. Let's pray together.